Welcome to the Verbatim Word Podcast, where we seek biblical truth in a daily context. This is Justin Gary. When I was a kid, I once asked my parents to send me to my room. You know, the punishment that typically came when you did something wrong and your parents sent you to your room to, quote, think about things for some time of introspection. I always tried to be a good kid and had never been sent to my room as far as I could recall. And one day I was watching TV and I saw a kid about my age who was sent to his room where he ate dinner all alone and had time to think. So I asked my parents to send me to my room and make me eat dinner alone because I had never experienced that. I wanted to experience firsthand what this common disciplinary measure was like. Well, my parents agreed and I went to my room as the rest of the family prepared and gathered for dinner and I sat alone in awkward silence and introspection with not much to ponder really. And finally, my mom brought me my dinner on a 1970s TV tray. And alone, I ate and reflected I think my mom even took a picture of it and it's stuffed in a photo album somewhere. I, I know it was a strange request from a strange younger me, but introspection is something we often fail to seek in an on-demand world. We're too busy in the rush of life and the here and now to be still and ponder, to seek introspection of our attitudes or our actions or our choices or even our identity. So God sometimes takes it upon himself to send us to our rooms, per se, to introspect. Israel was sent to their room in Babylon for 70 years to think about all that they had taken for granted as the children of God. Jonah in the Old Testament was sent to his room in the belly of a fish for three days to reflect upon God's heart of mercy for the Ninevites and his own prejudices against other nations. Even the disciples were sent to their rooms, the upper room, for the better part of 50 days from Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection until the day of Pentecost to prepare for their calling of taking the gospel forth to this world. Introspection is important. To be still and align ourselves with God. Even at the time of this recording, much of the world is in a second coronavirus lockdown, with plenty of time for introspection as events are canceled, business as usual is closed down, and we physically distance ourselves by mandate or by default. And while the world calls for it with the aim to flatten the curve, the Lord just might redeem it for a season of seeking and searching in our otherwise oh-too-busy lives. Well, Paul, too, was sent to his room a few times with lengthy periods for reflection and introspection and to meditate and ponder the things of God. He spent three days blind in Damascus immediately following his conversion, blind with no appetite, praying as he saw the light for the first time. What's more, he spent years in obscurity in the deserts of Arabia or the tent-making shops of Antioch, receiving revelation of the great mysteries of the Old Testament that he finally realized had been fulfilled in Jesus, redeeming those quiet years to better understand the gospel, to one day be able to articulate more clearly for those who might hear. At the time Paul wrote Ephesians, he was in a lockdown of his own, sent to his room. This time Paul was in prison under house arrest in Rome, all because of a misunderstanding in Jerusalem one which was capitalized upon by those who opposed him and the gospel, a politicized effort to take Paul out of the game and slow down the spread of the gospel. It's during this time of introspection that Paul once again ponders profound truths. Truths such as, who am I? What is my purpose? What am I doing? What does God want from me and for me? Questions whose answers were not only relevant to Paul himself, but to all those who believe in the gospel 
both Jews and Gentiles. On our last podcast, we saw that we who believe in Christ belong, no longer strangers and foreigners, but citizens, with all the privileges as well as responsibilities of belonging to God's kingdom. We also saw that we are a building being built up, each of us fitted together with the unique giftings and callings that he has given us, all of us a part of the bigger picture of a kingdom founded upon Christ. On this episode of Verbatim Word, we see that Paul reflects on just how profound the reality of the unified church is, and the privilege we have to understand that truth and live in light of it. In fact, Paul calls it a mystery something deep and wonderful that is worthy of our reflection and our introspection, whether we need to be sent to our room to ponder it or not. Join me now in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. We see in verse 1 of chapter 3 that Paul writes, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. What exactly is the this reason that Paul refers to? Well, it's what he concluded with in chapter 2, when he reminded them that both Jews and Gentiles were built on the same foundation. Together, they were a holy temple, a dwelling place of God and the Spirit. Two diverse groups now united and used by God for His eternal purposes. For this reason, the reason of the unified kingdom, Paul is the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. As Paul writes from prison, he acknowledges that he is in prison for you Gentiles. Consider that for a moment. The Gentiles. As a Jew, the Gentiles would have been Paul's former enemies, something we looked at in previous podcasts, in which we considered the great enmity that existed between these two cultures, a division like no other. And yet for this reason, as he wrote at the end of chapter 2, it's the fact that both groups— Jew and Gentile were now one nation, members of the same household and same family, both being fitted together as a holy temple to serve the God of heaven and earth and to both be filled with the same spirit. And because Paul held to that and believed it and taught it, he was now in prison, a prisoner for you Gentiles. Think about it. That's why his own people, the Jews, kept stirring up the Romans. His own people, the Jews, kept inciting Rome against Paul, even bringing the charges that led to Paul's current imprisonment. And why did they do it? Because Paul believed and taught that Gentiles could be saved, that they were fellow heirs. If he had just given up that belief or stopped preaching it or adjusted his message to be more appealing to the Jews, he could have avoided all the hardship that came, and even the imprisonment he was currently enduring. He was, as it says in verse 1, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. The Gentiles were the reason that he was in prison. Paul's desire was always for the Jews to get saved. They were his own countrymen, after all. Read his ministry model throughout the book of Acts. As he journeyed from town to town, region to region, he would first enter the synagogue, where the devout and faithful Jews gathered. For example, we see in Acts 17 when Paul came to Thessalonica. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, reasoned with the Jews. There and elsewhere, Paul's custom, Paul's pattern, was to testify to the Jews from the Old Testament scriptures, 
showing that Jesus was their long-awaited Savior. His Jewish audience usually found the message intriguing and interesting because they had never seen those things in the Old Testament before, and the points he made and the parallels he drew to Jesus could not be overlooked. Paul's desire, as he expressed in Romans 10, he said this, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. That was his passion. That was his heart. However, as much as it was Paul's desire to see the Jews saved, the pattern time and again was that they rejected the message. Even on Paul's first missionary journey, after attempts were made to persuade the Jews to embrace Jesus, we read, Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. And so the pattern was established. Try first for the Jews, but it usually ended with Paul and his team finding greater success and greater fruit with the Gentiles. And this is why Paul is in prison. Oh, if he had just kept his mouth shut. Oh, if he had just preached a more popular message. Oh, if he had just spoken on what the people wanted to hear. Oh, if he hadn't rocked the boat and if he had just fallen in line, Paul could have avoided much hardship. But even so, Paul declared, Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. It can be tempting to pull back on the truth of Christ in order to avoid conflict or not offend or, or to people please. But we are not to be ashamed of the gospel because through it and it alone can mankind be saved. Notice, Paul is in prison because of the Gentiles, but the Gentiles were not his first choice for ministry. They were not his personal preference. The Jews were. But the Lord seemed to open more doors for Paul and fruitful ones at that with the Gentiles. That was not Paul's natural inclination. He went to them out of obedience, not out of personal affection. As citizens of the kingdom of God, we have a calling, each and every one of us. We are all called to be missionaries, to take the gospel to those who need it. That may be in our own home or across the street or across town or even across the world. But one thing we must be sensitive to is to whom the Lord is calling us individually to share the message with. Because this world is vast and big and lost, and we can't each reach them all. But we can go to those the Lord is calling us to reach. And it can take some time and wisdom and revelation sometimes to discover who God is calling us to share the gospel with. The needs around us can be great, and we can get overwhelmed trying to figure out to whom and where we should be sharing the gospel. And that can lead us to do nothing instead of doing something to reach the lost with the truth of Jesus' message. When Paul wrote to the Colossian church around the same time that he wrote Ephesians, he asked for prayer in this area. He said, Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word, to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains. Paul knew that the world needed Christ. But he asked them to pray, to pray that God would open to them a door for the word, to speak the mystery of Christ, which we'll talk about more in our next podcast. But Paul wanted a door for us, a door for them, a specific door or specific doors that God was opening for them to be a part of the great commission that we are all called to. Now, practically, this was an important prayer. 
Paul was a seasoned missionary, used to sharing with one and all. But under house arrest in Rome, he needed the Lord himself to open doors for him to share right where he was because he couldn't go anywhere. That verse from Colossians became one of my prayers too when we left the mission field. In Europe, I knew who I was to share the Lord with. There were few Bible teaching churches in the, in the nation that I lived in, and I was planted and rooted in a certain community. And that is who God had called me to share the word with in that season, to the people of that city, to the people of that region, to the people of that nation. But now I was back in Oklahoma, working in an everyday job and a land saturated with churches. And I wondered, Lord, who is to be my ministry now? And that verse from Colossians, it became my prayer. Lord, open to us a door for the word. I asked him to open specific doors, doors for Aaron and I specifically, to be able to send hand-picked ministry our way, to meet the needs of the kingdom that he had for us with our unique giftings, our unique callings, our unique uh, personalities and experiences. And you know what? He did. And he has. It was amazing to see who the Lord brought apart across our path or to our home or to our classrooms. It's been a different season. He's called us to minister to individuals or smaller groups that he brings to us for the most part. But he is clearly open to us specific ways to minister. Divine appointments, we would call them. Two questions for us then. First of all, do you want to minister? Do you want to share the truth of God's word? That's the first thing to consider. Sometimes we act like high school students in history or math class, hoping the Lord, like the teacher, will not call upon us, sinking down in our chairs in the back row, hoping that we're not seen, content to just shuffle along in our own lives, not wanting the Lord to send any ministry our way. But do you want the Lord to open to you doors to speak the mystery of Christ? If so, ask for it. Then be on the lookout for it. He said the fields are white for harvest. Pray that the Lord would send people in. Isaiah, he overheard, Who, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And he said, here I am, send me. Is that your desire? If so, ask for it. Then be on the lookout for it. Don't strive, don't stress, don't push for it, but be open and step out in faith when it comes. Second, who does God tend to bring your way? A few minutes ago, we considered that Paul had great fruit amongst the Gentiles. In fact, he was a prisoner, quote, for you Gentiles. Even though his natural inclination was to share with the Jews, Paul picked up on the fact that the Lord sent him Gentiles time and time again. And when he yielded and surrendered to that, he found a fruitful ministry to them. So, our question, who does God tend to bring your way? Be aware of who God brings. A friend of mine was telling me about her mom. She's, she's a faithful woman of God. Her, her mom is in her retirement years. Her mom loves the Lord, serves at the church, and she's conservative by all standards, a real authentic Bible Belt Christian woman. And my friend was telling me that her mom is an LGBTQ plus magnet. And it doesn't matter how or who or where she is. She doesn't even necessarily seek it out but that members of the LGBTQ plus community are simply drawn to her. And she doesn't seek it out. It just happens naturally, or we could say supernaturally, as she goes about with her daily life. At the hairdresser or visiting the doctor or some other everyday thing, God opens to her doors to minister to this segment of the community. 
She's a woman of truth, a woman of grace, a woman all about the gospel, and she has a ministry to them, whether she seeks it out or not. So who does God bring your way? Or who does God tend to bring your way? For Paul, it was not natural to reach the Gentiles. He was naturally drawn to the Jews, and it may not be a natural connection. Jeremiah was quite young when he was called to preach to the rebellious tribe of Judah. And the Lord said to him in his call in Jeremiah 1 verse 7, But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am a youth, for you shall go to all to whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Responding to the call of God on our lives can challenge us at the core, and we can resist the leadings of God. But God challenged Jeremiah and said, For you shall go to all to whom I send you. All Jeremiah had to do was figure out who God would send him to and who God would send to him. I was at a conference in Austria once, and we had a time of prayer towards the end of the conference. And the gentleman leading the prayer meeting, he received a word from the Lord, and he began to pray for someone in the congregation who was sitting there that night. Someone that he said was sensing the call of God, but resisting that call. And the man up front who was leading the meeting, he said things like, you know that God is calling you to a particular nation, but you're resisting it. In fact, he's showing you in many ways that that is the nation and the people you're to go to. It comes up in conversations with others who have no idea about it. You see the name of this nation in random places, and it keeps popping up, even though you're not seeking it. You meet people from this nation. You hear people talk about this nation. You read about this nation in the news but you are resisting. If that's you, we would like to pray for you. There was a brief silence, and then up in front, a man stood up, laughing a little bit, to be honest, but laughing in surrender, saying, okay, God, you have my attention now. I thought I was just imagining all these things, but I get it. He shared with us, with the rest of the group that was there, that the calling had grown so intense, and he indeed had this nation and people come across his path all the time. In fact, that day for lunch at the conference there in Austria, we'd been served schnitzel. It's a flattened piece of meat breaded and deep fried if you've never had it before. And this poor man shared with us that even his piece of schnitzel at lunch had been in the shape of this nation that he knew the Lord was calling him to, but he had been resisting. Now, it might be supernatural like that with God sending you lots of symbols, or you may just pick up on the fact, who is God sending across your path? Oh, if we would just be open to whom the Lord wants us to minister to. As he said to Jeremiah, For you shall go to all to whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. That's a promise, be it to a nation or to single moms or to students in your life, or to truck drivers or to prisoners or to high-ranking officials or to your kids' friends or whatever demographic or subculture or individuals he places on your path, you shall go and you shall speak. Paul realized that God was faithful to give the grace to fulfill what he was calling Paul to do. He says in Ephesians 3 verses 1 and 2, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. Paul said that the Ephesians had likely heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to him for those very Gentiles, saying in essence that there was nothing naturally in him that would make him desire to share with Gentiles 
or to be equipped to minister to them. But that it was the dispensation of the grace of God that allowed him to do it. That God dispensed a measure of grace for Paul to fulfill that calling. When I think of a dispenser, I think of a Pez dispenser for some reason. Those toys with the heads of some cartoon character and you tilted the head back on the Pez dispenser and out came one Pez tablet for you to savor and enjoy. A dispenser gives out just enough, one portion at a time. And Paul acknowledged that God dispensed enough grace to him to be able to meet the needs of the Gentiles. God dispenses grace that is equal to the ministry he calls us to. If he draws people to you or asks you to speak up for him, he will equip you for it with a dispensation of grace that is equal to the need. For Paul, this ministry was not easy. It took him to the extreme of even going to prison. And notice, Paul did not grow bitter or resentful or hardened to the Gentiles, that because of them and his ministry to them, hard things had come Paul's way. Because as he said in verse 1, he was a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Not a prisoner of these Gentiles or a prisoner because of you undeserving Gentiles, but a prisoner of Jesus Christ. The prison sentence was all a part of his call, a call for which Paul was willing to lay down everything. He was just following the example of Christ in fulfilling his own personal calling. As it says in 1 John 3, verse 16, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Paul was able to keep ministering to the Gentiles, even when it got tough. He was able to because God gave him more grace to do it. Ministering to others costs us and requires us to pour out more than we anticipate. And we can run low and then burn out or give up or continue doing it in our flesh for a season. But in true spirit-filled ministry, we keep coming back for more grace because we know that we cannot do it apart from him. For he is the vine, the vine that dispenses the grace for the call. And we are the branches. We draw from him, from his wells of grace. And if we abide and we receive new grace, we will keep bearing fruit. We had some freakish weather in Oklahoma lately, which tends to happen pretty often here, but it was an out-of-season ice storm in late October when the trees were still full of their leaves. And because of this, this caused the ice to have more surface area to build up on and stick to. And what resulted was snapping limbs and snapping power lines like never before. Our power went out for hundreds of thousands of households in Oklahoma City area for many days, our, our own house included. Some of these people were out for up to two weeks. Schools were closed. Businesses were closed. It was a big deal, and there was no power. Thankfully, our above and beyond neighbors, who are always so generous, helped us out. They offered a portable generator to us, enough to keep our heat on, our food cold, and our internet up and running so we could work and stay connected to the world. And man, I tell you, I am thankful for that generator. On the back porch, it ran day in and day out for days. And my neighbor just told me, he said, just keep filling it with gas and checking the oil and it will keep running for you. So I did. About every eight to 10 hours, I would shut off the generator and it would cool down a little bit. And then I would replenish the gas and pull the cord to start it running again. That generator was a lifesaver. It ran and ran and ran and kept giving and giving and giving. And we were never without. 
And so it is with the grace of God, an unending source when we draw upon it, a generator of grace to do the things that God has called upon us to do. Even if we do not desire it or seek out those ministries, he will dispense the grace we need to fulfill his purposes when we're obedient to step into them. Paul said in verse 2, If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. You likely have heard testimonies of God's good grace to empower and enable his people. Or you yourself have drawn upon his grace to be able to keep pouring out when it has been tough. My wife and I reflect often about our first year home in America off the mission field. Honestly, we do not know how we did it. It was truly the grace of God to enable us and sustain us to obey and to do what he was calling us to do. The grace in that first year home was unbelievable, though, considering all we were dealing with. The summer we left the mission field was full of ministry and packing and uprooting and saying goodbye. During that summer, we handed over the church to national leaders. But that also meant when we got on that plane that we left all of our closest friends, we left our church, and we left the support system that we had built and depended on for quite some ta- time. So we got home to America, and then we crossed cultures, re-entering the United States. And a culture that, though it was our own, seemed oddly unfamiliar because we had gone been gone for a period of time. On top of that, we left full-time ministry and began new jobs and new careers outside the walls of the church. We became high school teachers, which teaching has a huge learning curve. And high school was not the same as it was when we had left it. The first year at work was tough, to say the least. We showed up early. We were often the first ones in the building. We were leaving late, sometimes the, the last ones working, just getting used to this new thing called teaching. On top of that, We lived an hour away, so we commuted to and from work. We were up at about 4 or 4.30 each morning, leaving long before daylight and returning home some days after dark following our hour drive home. On top of that, where we were living, we were living in the guest room at my wife's grandmother's house, sharing a fold-out, full-sized futon bed. Her grandmother had recently been widowed, and she was navigating through losing a lifelong spouse, and we were offering care and support during the transition. So it wasn't just a home, but it was a time to minister to her grandmother, during which time her grandmother then was diagnosed with a terminal illness, and we became caregivers when we were at home, getting up three to four times a night during the short nights of sleep we had to help her out and then getting up in the morning and then going to school and being there all day and coming home. And it was an endless cycle. Physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, we were being stretched to say the least. But you know what we always talk about now in hindsight? It was one of our best years ever. With all the challenges and all the changes and all the tough things, we had taken the steps off the mission field in faith and obedience, and God gave us the grace time and again, day in and day out. And that grace did not run dry. In fact, it was overflowing. Now, when we think back, we wonder, how the heck did we do that? Grace. It was grace. And perhaps you've experienced something as well where you've just been stretched your end and somehow God is giving you the grace to do it and the grace to move on. That's exactly what I'm talking about. And that's what Paul's talking about here as well. Who is God giving you grace for? 
We often think that the grace is for us to do what we need to do and to do it successfully. But often, God gives us more grace to be conduits of his grace. We get the grace because others need it. And we get to dispense his grace to those who desperately need it. Remember when Paul was blind for three days after meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus? It was Ananias who the Lord called to come and pray for Paul to receive his sight. Ananias showed up, and his name means the Lord is gracious. And as he, Ananias, the Lord is gracious, Paul prayed for Paul, Paul's sight was restored, and he was filled with the Spirit, and Paul's ministry began. God imparted and dispensed his grace to Paul through Ananias, literally meaning the Lord is gracious. Now in Ephesians 3 verse 2, Paul says, The grace of God which was given to me for you. Who is God wanting to deliver grace to through you? Remember, they may not deserve it because grace is unmerited favor, something that we have not earned. And we live in a world that is not very gracious. It's pretty cutthroat out there, not a lot of forgiveness or room to wiggle. Do something wrong and the world will call you out or hang you out to dry on social media or on cable news. Times are tough and competitive and challenging. And there's not a lot of grace, not a lot of unmerited favor, is there? Who is God bringing into your life to show some grace to? Who is God putting in your path to pass on his grace to? What open doors does he have for you, you specifically, to extend grace? It might be giving them a second chance or a third or fourth or 70 times seven. It might be in forgiving a deadline or listening to their plight for the first time or again for the countless time. It might be smiling at a stranger or being kind to a customer or letting someone else go first. It might be letting go of your anger or your unforgiveness or your expectations. Showing grace does not show up in just one or two ways. There's many ways to extend grace. The apostle Peter knew the grace of God firsthand. And he knew he needed it when the rooster crowed after denying Jesus three times. And years later, Peter wrote this in his first epistle in chapter 4, verse 10. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. As each one has received a gift, he says. The word there in Greek is charisma. It's the same basic word as the word for grace. As each one has received grace, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. God has tons of grace. It's manifold, folded up on top of each other, layer upon layer, over and over again. Be good stewards of the manifold grace of God. What grace is he extending to you to be able to impart to others? We're just dispensers. Pez dispensers, meeting out one lick of grace at a time as we receive it ourselves. God is the God of all grace, and He's a good God who gives it to us that we might give it to other people. And Lord, we thank you that while we were yet sinners, that Christ died for us. We thank you for the cross of Christ, Lord, which his body was given and it was broken for us, Lord, that we might receive forgiveness, that we might receive the grace of God, even though for years we had been storing up his wrath because of disobedience. 
And Lord, we pray that you'd wash over our lives with grace once again, that we'd receive a new measure of grace. And Lord, make us aware of those that you bring who still need your grace, that we might see who you bring across our path and that we'd be bold to step out in faith and to open up our mouth and to speak the words of Christ. And Lord, that we might even be willing to step out and go as we feel led to bring grace to a world that is in desperate need of grace. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.